time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, June 9th, 2009. Took an unexpected three-day weekend. Good to be back in my seat behind the microphone doing the vocation that God has called me to. Serving my neighbor, serving you. By dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro, and you are listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the program that may upset your apple carts, may cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, because on a daily basis, we proclaim the full counsel of the Word of God, which has this really bad habit of slaughtering sacred cows, casting down idols, and exposing false religion. Why do we do such a terrible negative, politically incorrect thing is that? Well, because God makes alive by first killing. Brings us to repentance and and the forgiveness of sins. That's right. He brings us down, destroys us so that he may lift us up. He exalts the humble and he casts down the prideful. It's all part of how God works here. It's been painful in my life and, well, I want to share that pain with you. Well, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Well, we've got a good program lined up for you today on a Tuesday. It, it feels like Monday to me because I've been out of pocket here taking care of a small family problem. Things are settled down now and working out just fine. I wish I could give you details, but that's a family matter. All right, to, on today's program, I've got uh, one piece of email that I want to read. We're going to be uh, listening to Evan Thomas of Newsweek. Uh, apparently, Obama is a sort of god. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, we've got a, uh, a Christian news, uh, Christian Post story. Uh, Americans apparently are tired of typical church, a report has shown. Uh, t- tired of typical church. We're going to talk about that and kind of parse that particular piece. Uh, then we're going to be listening to a fractured fairy tale. That's what we like to uh, call it whenever we do uh, stuff from Extreme Prophetic. Uh, Julie Meyer of Extreme Prophetic is going to tell us of a dream that she had of an angel uh, with a sour guitar. We're going to listen to that uh, fractured fairy tale. And then, uh, let's see, we're going to read another Christian news uh, story entitled Christians Urge to Repent of Religion, which is rather interesting because it's by a gentleman who actually spoke at the Advance 09 conference, and uh, it, which, from what I'm hearing, and we're going to be reviewing one of the lectures or plenary speeches from that, it turned out to be a pretty decent conference. And, uh, in fact, we're going to, rather than doing a sermon review today, we're going to listen to one of the plenary speeches delivered by Matt Chandler on preaching the gospel to the de-churched. Yeah, that's right, preaching the gospel to the de-churched. So, got a good program lined up today, a little bit different. Well, of course, we like to keep things similar and the same and different all at the same time. Don't ask me to explain that, just consider it to be paradoxical. All right, moving along here to our email. I got an email from Steve Morris. He wrote me. He's a, one of my friends on Facebook. That's right. Yes, I am a Facebook guy, which means that you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I will generally say yes. And uh, he, many people either send me 
uh, comments uh, there on Facebook or leave uh, comments on my wall or send me emails, you can do so. My name is Chris Rosebro. Also, just by the way, I want to remind you that if you would like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets, I don't use Twitter to tell people things like, I'm going to uh, McDonald's now. I've, I'm stopping at Subway. Had just had a venti mocha latte at Starbucks. Uh, that's I consider that to be kind of a waste of uh, typing and a waste of your time. The last thing you guys want to know anything about are my eating habits, whether or not I'm going to the dry cleaners or anything like that. Instead, I use tw- uh, Twitter to basically send out thought pieces and to kind of be proclamational. That's right. It, you, that's how I use it. So if you wanted to know what my favorite brand of toothpaste was and thought that you can discover that by following me on Twitter, uh, that ain't how you're going to figure that out. And by the way, I don't have a favorite brand of uh, toothpaste. It's whatever's cheapest at Walmart or Costco at the moment that uh, generally becomes the toothpaste of the week. Just want to let you know that. <laughs> All right, uh, Steve writes, he says, Hey, I just listened to the Todd Hahn sermon from the other day, and I'm speechless. Now, Todd Hahn is uh, the gentleman who is uh, one of the pastors at a seeker-driven church that I have just launched into a nine-week series on the book of Galatians, and the name of it is Religionless. And uh, we had to feature it because it was a break with uh, what I would consider the typical seeker-driven, purpose-driven type of uh, sermon, considering the fact that this is the typical seeker-driven type of church. And um, and we we just praise them up and down for correctly dividing law and gospel and for preaching Christ and Him crucified. It was just a fantastic sermon. In fact, the day after that, we, we to show how far uh, uh, Todd Hahn's church had come, we pre- uh, played their uh, sermon from the Love Guru, yeah, they, they did a sermon on the Love Guru. We played that uh, the next day just to kind of give you a flavor for how far they had come. But uh, Steve, he says, I'm speechless. A seeker-sensitive guy preaches an amazing law gospel sermon with a great background theology to boot. It was both sad and refreshing at the same time, and he was telling his flock to start bringing their Bibles. That would be needing one going forward. Yeah, that's right. Um, you're right. It is both sad and encouraging. It's both uplifting and depressing. Uh, depressing in the sense that where had this church been before that? What were they doing up until that point? Makes you wonder, were they just playing at church? But at the same time, you know, we read in scriptures that um, when when a sinner repents, that the angels in heaven rejoice and they party. And so as a result of it, you know, I think we need to take that tact as well, because here's the deal. Every single one of us, me and you included, um, if it were not for God's grace, if it were not for Christ's mercy, if it were not for his blood, for his forgiveness of sins, um, we it, it, that could be us, any one of us that, you know, that is, is off on the wrong track because all of us are born sinners. We are born rebelling against God. Our hearts are idol factories. We don't want to re- Pent, we, we we won't come to God is basically what it comes down to. <clears throat> and so much of what I see in the seeker-driven movement is a rebellion against God's word and against what God has established. Some of it is a rebellion against just plain out pharisaical legalistic Christianity, which has been all too pervasive in Christian in, in, in American evangelicalism. Um, the problem is, is the opposite error is not the same as the truth, and so they swing the pendulum too far. You know, whereas that people felt stifled in one generation, now they've they've gone so freeform, they've lost they, they they've lost grounding as a result of it. You know, what's happening is is that I see in Todd Hahn 
a, a tacit uh, repentance. It's not him saying, mea culpa, I was wrong. It's, it's him standing up and saying, you know what, we're going to do something different and we're going to head the right way. And our response to somebody that does that is, is, yeah, we should mourn for what has happened, but we should rejoice in their repentance and and uplift and pray for this church. Pray that God continues to speak their word, the, his word to them, and that he continues to grow their pastors in a way that they will go deeper and deeper into God's word and constantly bring out law and gospel and Christ and him crucified, regardless of whatever sermon series that they're on. So Todd Hahn and, and uh, their church are in my prayers, and I'm, and, and I'm glad that you're pointing this out. He says, um, Steve says, that message was so well done and chock full of gospel, my stomach soon stopped turning over the fact that he was recommending they go to the New uh, Living Translation. I, I agree. He says, I know it's the power of God and it's not the speaker's skill or style, Romans 1, yet I think this is an example of how freshly and well the gospel can be delivered when one of these seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven pastors who are mostly very good communicators, some exceptionally, uh, finally get it. Some Someone needs to send this guy a fruit basket. <laughs> I hope he's the first of many. I do too, Stephen. Thank you for the email. That's a great point. And a lot of these seeker guys are truly gifted communicators, and we we love it when they get it and uh, when they're breaking ranks with these other guys and have actually going back to the basics, going back to Scripture, to uh, to the uh, dedicating themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayers, and the and the breaking of bread. I mean, great, great stuff. Which, by the way, uh, I I got word uh, yesterday uh, via email that uh, Gary Lamb of Revolution Church has had to step down as the pastor of Revolution Church because he was having an affair with his uh, secretary, his personal assistant. And um, I, I wish I could say that this is shocking and surprising to me. Unfortunately, it's not. I know more of Gary Lamb's story than I've ever revealed here on the air. And our our response really needs to be, in Gary Lamb's case, to keep him and his wife and you know in in prayer and to pray for Revolution Church right now. Uh, this is a church that is seeker sensitive, purpose driven, um, and has been off the rails in many regards uh, when it comes to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And uh, what they've been preaching and teaching has uh, been a mixed bag at best. And pray that uh, <clears throat> that God would grant uh, Gary Lamb repentance, and not only repentance, <clears throat> but that he would experience and know that Christ even died for this sin, and uh, and that he would really, really, truly uh, know Christ's forgiveness and mercy that was bought at a price, and it wasn't cheap. It was bought at the price of Christ's blood on the cross. And so we got to keep Gary Lamb in our prayers, but also pray for Revolution Church. Pray that during this time of transition, when they're obviously going to be uh, looking for a new pastor, that God would send them a shepherd, that God would send them a man who will shepherd them and who will preach to them God's law and the gospel, that will rightly divide the word of truth and will constantly, Sunday after Sunday, bring them Christ and Him crucified. So we do not gloat or rejoice when a pastor falls morally. Instead, we we mourn that such a thing has happened and pray that God would uh, take this terrible situation and work it in a way that will be ultimately for his glory 
and ultimately for the for the good of all those who uh, who are involved in what happened. And keep this in mind that uh, Gary Lamb, it was it, he was found out, you know, that as far as having this affair is concerned, and um, and as a result of it, God is disciplining him, and God disciplines those He loves, and so. Uh, we need to keep that in mind too. That as he's being disciplined, that we should see this discipline as coming from God, and proof that uh, that God loves Gary Lamb, and is uh, continuing to work in his life. All right, all right. Moving along here to the news. I've got a news story from the Christian Post. Headline reads: Americans are tired of typical church report shows. That's right. Are you the typical American? That means that you're tired of typical church. (sighs) That's right. This is from Audrey Barrick, who is a Christian Post reporter uh, from the Christian Post. Americans are tired of typical church. Now, what does that mean? Uh, In fact, as we read this article, uh, let's ask ourselves, what does this mean? Okay, researcher George Barna says a spiritual makeover is taking place as Americans approach religion and church is in less traditional ways. Half of Americans surveyed in the latest Barna Group report say a growing number of people they know are, quote, tired of the usual type of church experience. Okay, now I'm going to stop right there. What is the usual type of church experience? What are we talking about? Okay, because I'll be blunt. Okay, if this this is their latest survey, since the seeker-driven model is predominantly the model being followed in America, wouldn't that mean that that's how people view church as usual? Uh, They're going to write this story in such a way that what's under attack are traditional churches, but the way I see it is, is that it's hard to find a good traditional church. It's, it's hard to find a church that follows the liturgy and really does the hard work of preaching law and gospel, of preaching Christ, or singing Christ-centered hymns and, and songs. Typical church in America is the seeker-driven megachurch model that everyone thinks is the thing that they need to do in order to get big numbers in the church, pragmatically speaking, right? So my question right off the bat is, if George Barna's results are saying that people are tired of the church as usual, the, church, the usual type of church experience, isn't the usual type of church experience now, for the past 20 years, the contemporary seeker-driven model? I continue, two out of three adults at 64% also say they are completely open to carry out and pursue uh, your faith in an environment of or structure that differs from that of a typical church. According to the survey of 1,004 adults, women were more likely to agree than men. There's a pervading sense that people are turning away from traditional religious practices and looking for other ways to experience God. Again, I ask the question, uh, for the average everyday grassroots American uh, who's gone to Christian churches, wouldn't traditional religious practice be the non-denominational seeker-driven model? That's how I would see it. Um, Okay, so let me see. In other words, they are looking for other ways to, quote, experience God, which leads to my question is, what on earth are they talking about when it comes to, quote, experiencing God? 
when did the experience become the thing that unifies or the thing that's important? I, I ask this question because um, if I see experience as being something completely subjective. Uh, you know, what does that mean? I went in and I raised my hands in church and I felt electricity in the air and I, it gave me a, li- a liver shiver and goosebumps. Is that what they're talking about? What is this, quote, other way of experiencing God? And I ask the question because um, my, of course, my fundamental question on this is, who is it that decides how we experience God? Is it me, you, or God who determines how we experience God? So here they're taking the survey, sticking their finger into the wind to try to figure out where the prevailing religious winds are blowing, um, and, but, and they basically said the traditional religious practices are, are dead and people are looking for other ways to experience God. But if you've been in American churches for the past 20 years, uh, then those churches that are, again, the non-denominational seeker model, those are the ones that are now traditional churches in America. We continue. Out of uh, three out of four adults say God is motivating people to stay connected him to Him, but in different ways and through different types of experiences than in the past. Three out of four adults say God is motivating people to stay connected with Him, but in different ways and through different types of experiences in the past. You know, you notice this theme here: the experience is becoming the big thing. That's the 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 the. The supposedly the unifier here is is that we're we're looking for different experiences. You see, fifty years ago, uh, God, people experienced God by sitting in a hardwood pew and singing a stodgy hymn, and now people are experiencing God by attending a a weekly rock concert. Is it the experience that unites us, or is it Christ and doctrine that focuses in on Him? Quote, Protestants and Catholics are just as likely to agree. People are suggesting that they want more of God and less of the stuff that gets between them and the relationship with God, states the Barna Report. So, according to Barna, people are suggesting that they want more of God and less of the stuff that gets between them and the relationship with God. Now, of course, now, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any amount of time, you know we do a lot of sermon reviews here on this program. And I could make the case, and I think I could rightly argue, uh, that seeker-driven pastors and their really bad uh, sermons get in the way of God. In fact, they're not bringing God to people in their sermons. They're bringing uh, three easy tips on how to you know, have the better, more fulfilling life, you know, and that includes family, sex life, marriage, uh, you know, uh, career, uh, vision for your life purpose, whatever. Um, but again, I ask the question, if people are saying that they want more of God and less of the stuff that gets in between them and the relationship with God, since the typical church in America is the contemporary, kind of charismatic, uh, watered-down service, you know, the Sunday rock concert with a motivational pep talk, isn't that how Americans view traditional church in America now? 
The report further pointed out that most Americans, 71%, are choosing to develop religious beliefs on their own rather than accept a set of beliefs taught at a particular church. Listen to this again. 71% are choosing to develop religious beliefs on their own. Really? Since when am I qualified to make up my own religious beliefs? I mean, if I'm making up my own religious beliefs, am I not in rebellion to the religious beliefs that God is calling me to believe? Doesn't God call me to repentance? That's a change of mind, by the way. To change my mind regarding my self-made, cobbled-together religion and to accept and receive from him the beliefs that are taught in scriptures? And isn't the job uh, the job of isn't it the job of the church to preach sound doctrine? See, this is a very interesting thing. The Barter Group attributes this st- uh, statistic to growing distrust towards churches and organized Christianity. Growing distrust toward churches and organized Christianity. So, what are we supposed to be? The emergence, you know, be disorganized Christianity. No doctrines, no 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 firm proclamations of anything. Uh, just uh, this idea of catering to America's idea of independence. The reason I ask these questions is because I know that there are some church leaders who are going to read this and go, "Oh, we've got we've got to give the culture what they want. We've got to give them what they want because they 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 distrust organized religion. So we have to be disorganized. That's the solution. Let's become disorganized in order to reach those who are distrusting." Again, uh, I point out the fact that um, Scripture is clear: all of us, by nature, are born sinful. Sinners, rebels, if you would, rebels against God, against anything that has to do with the true, one true God. We don't want to have nothing to do with him. Uh, We don't just distrust him. We hate him. And the thing is, is that God has given us this amazing thing called his word. It's his word, not ours. We as Christians are called to proclamation. We are called to proclaim Christ and him crucified for sins. We are to announce to sinners that they are forgiven in Christ and that Christ has died for their sins and call them to repentance and basically using God's law, show these distrustful non-Christians, these rebels against God, that it is their Sin that put Christ on the cross. It is their wickedness that nailed him to the tree. It is their wickedness that caused him to be scourged. In fact, that he was scourged in their place. We are to go out and proclaim in the name of Jesus repentance and the reception, the receiving of the forgiveness of sins by God's ridiculous mercy and love and grace in Jesus Christ. And the funny thing is, is that scripture says that God uses the preaching of this gospel, the preaching of this good news to bring sinners to repentance and to deliver the forgiveness of sins, to create faith, to raise them from the dead spiritually. So what happens when I read uh, the latest Barna report, well, 
every single Barna report, I could care less. It kind of goes like this. And into the round file. I don't care if 99% of Americans distrust organized religion. I don't care if 99.7% of Americans hate the Christian God. We Christians are part of the church militant, and we have a weapon that nobody else has. We don't need to convert people at the end of a sword. Because ultimately that doesn't convert anybody anyways. That all they do is save their skins uh, when they, quote, convert at the end of a sword. No, instead we have the amazing sword of the Holy Spirit, the word of God. And his word is powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when we proclaim the gospel message... Not even the gates of hell could stand against us. Notice that gates, uh, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Um, Gates, by the way, are they offensive or defensive weapons? When I say, hide behind the city gates, the enemy is coming. Am I telling people to retreat or am I telling them to go on the attack? Am I telling them to go on defense or am I telling them to go on offense? Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Was Jesus telling us to play defense? Or was he encouraging his church to go on offense and do the most audacious thing possible? Go into a dark and sinful age full of sinners who are rebelling against God and take the fight to them and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And he said the gates of hell will not prevail against that. In other words, Satan is on the defense, not the offense. I don't care what Satan is up to. I'm more interested in what we can do to him. Because Christ has already overcome Satan. He's a defeated enemy. And his measly gates do not stand a chance against the preaching of Christ and him crucified. At least that's the way I see it. If you differ in your opinion, I'd love to hear it. Email me. (laughs) All right. We're up on our first break. And when we get back, um, let's see here. (laughs) We're going to talk about... Uh, I'm going to read something from, uh, uh, from is it a pink. Yeah. Pink on, uh, apostles of Satan. Uh, we're going to be doing a little fractured fairy tales from Julie Meyer of extreme prophetic. And we're going to read another news story about Christians urge to repent of religion. And then we're going to be talking, uh, listening to Matt Chandler's plenary from the advance Oh nine conference on preaching the gospel to the D church. Lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, shortly, so you definitely don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and, and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. 
Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. We're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I've got this quote from A.W. Pink called Apostles of Satan. Apostoloid to Satana. want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. That's right. It's it's vital. <laughs> I can't even emphasize that enough. Uh, folks, if you're growing uh, as a result of fighting for the faith and you're learning and growing in your discernment and are learning how to divide law and gospel and how to focus on and hear Christ and him crucified for your sins and to defend the Christian faith, uh, then really we need you to consider partnering with us. Even even during the summer months when traditionally uh, giving of this type goes down, if you would, there's a dip in giving. Well, <clears throat> there's no dip in our expenses, so <laughs> we pray that you would consider continuing to uh, to support Fighting for the Faith through your financial contributions. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of the friendly yellow donate buttons on our page there, 
Or you can do it the traditional way. You can send your gift to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here's a a quote from A.W. Pink. Now, I've updated this a little bit. That's right. I did some A.W. Pink translating, if you would. This is from his book called Another Gospel. And, uh, and I've, I've updated it a little bit to make it postmodern rather than modern. And so he, rather than talking about saloons and, uh, and, and slave traders, uh, we've, tra- we've traded that in for a little bit more modern lingo. But the point is still made. So this is A.W. Pink with some slight modifications uh, via Rosebro called Apostles of Satan. Well, I read, the apostles of Satan are not abortionists and sex traffickers, but are for the most part ordained ministers. Thousands of those who occupy our postmodern pulpits are no longer engaged in presenting the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but have turned aside from the truth and have given heed unto fables. Instead of magnifying the enormity of sin and setting forth its eternal consequences, they minimize it by declaring that sin is merely ignorance or the absence of good. Instead of warning their hearers to flee from the wrath to come, they make God a liar by declaring that he is too loving and merciful to send any of his own creatures to eternal torment. Instead of declaring that without shedding of blood is no remission of sins, they merely hold up Christ as the great exemplar and exhort their hearers to follow in his steps. To learn how his learn his secret seven uh, his seven secrets to less stressful life, of them it must be said, for they are being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Their message may sound very plausible, their aim appear very praiseworthy. Yet we read of them, quote, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing not to be wondered at if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, those end, whose end shall be according to their works. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. In addition to the fact that today hundreds of churches are without a leader who faithfully declares the whole counsel of God and presents his way of salvation, we have also we also have to face the additional fact that the majority of people in these churches are very unlikely to learn the truth themselves. A little bit of wisdom from A.W. Pink, who lived from 1886 to 1952, and uh, that sounds like it's spot on to me. And uh, considering the fact he probably didn't write this in the year of his death, uh, it's funny, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Talking about apostles of Satan, or for those of you in Greek, apostoloi to Santana, uh, we re- <laughs> we are going to change gears here and do a little bit of uh, uh, well, uh, fractured fairy tales. Anytime we do something from extreme prophetic, uh, we, we, we now use that segment of our program uh, <clears throat> from the fractured t- fairy tales. Uh, there it is. That's right. Today we're going to be listening to Julie Meyer of Extreme Prophetic tell us of her dream of an angel with a sour guitar. There we go. That's their <laughs> segment. 
opening. Uh, <laughs> well, this is from the Extreme Prophetic website. This is uh, the home of uh, such wonderful people as uh, <sighs> Patricia King. Uh, Todd Bentley has appeared in this in this space. Uh, it's this this group of people who are into the uh, into the so called apostolic outpourings and the glory of the Holy Spirit. Here is Julie Meyer sharing about a visitation in a dream uh, from an angel with a message about God's desire to tune up our lives for righteousness. Hi, my name is Julie Meyer, and I'm going to share with you a dream that I had. And of all my dreams, I love this dream. Aren't you glad that this Christian ministry is, this woman here is going to share with us her dream why? Because, well, she had a visitation from an angel. Therefore, this dream is on the same level as Scripture itself. It is such a fun dream. but I- It's a fun dream, too. Isn't that great? I mean, the last thing we would want is a dream that wasn't fun. I was, in my dream, I was sleeping. and I- Could you imagine the paradox there? You're having a dream about you sleeping in a dream. Wouldn't that create a disruption in the time-space continuum? Just wondering. I was uh, awoke by a terrible sound. It sounded horrible. So in my dream, I sat up in my bed, and there is an angel at the foot of my bed, and he's playing a guitar. But the guitar, it's it, all the strings are loose. Notice that uh, there was an angel sitting at the foot of her bed, and her first response wasn't, Nothing about fear not. I have a message from nothing like that. No, it's just an angel. Probably, you know, one of those, you know, probably with long hair, dreadlocks, kind of cool shirt, maybe, you know, wearing, you know, flip-flop sandals, playing a guitar. And he's just strumming this guitar over and over with these strings that are loose. And if you are a musician at all, you know that's a bad sound. It was a... You don't even have to be a musician to know that that sound is a bad sound. Horrible sound. Yes. And he just kept doing it. Preach it, sister. Tell us more about your dreams. And in my mind, because, you know, when you have a dream, Uh you're still you. Yeah. You don't, like, all of a sudden have all the answers. No, really. I I feel the same way, too, when I have dreams. Isn't that amazing? You're still just you. No. You don't know any more. Right. And you don't know any less. <laughs> and in my Isn't that deep? <laughs> so profound. Dream, I was thinking, why are you playing this this old guitar? It was kind of old and it was dusty. And I, I was thinking of all the instruments in eternity, like David's harp or of all the instruments you could... Because, you know, the angels, they, they kept that harp. It was such a cool harp. Be playing... You are playing this? It sounds horrible. And then I was thinking, well, maybe he's just not musical. I mean... (laughs) We've got the first musically non-talented angel appearing at the foot of her bed. Maybe he flunked auditions for the Host of Heaven band. I I could not... Maybe he failed at Heavenly Idol. Understand why in the world... Let that one sink in. Failed at Heavenly Idol. Would there be such a show? Probably not. He was strumming this guitar. That, and I thought, maybe he's just practicing at my bed. You know. Maybe you just made this whole thing up. 
No, it wouldn't be that. Oh, so that the next, I had no clue. I had no clue. I'm just asking myself all these questions. Yeah. And then after a while, uh -huh. he began to tighten the strings. Just, just one, he began to pull the strings on this guitar uh -huh. tighter. And at first, I... Can't you just feel the tension in the story building? <laughs> Sorry, pun intended. I wasn't bothered because that's what you do with the guitar. And I was thinking, well, good, because maybe he is a little bit musical. And and then he he began to tighten them a lot. Yeah. And, and I started, in my dream, I started feeling uncomfortable because if you tighten a string too tight, it will snap. Yeah, because... The neck of the guitar will snap. No. And then I kept thinking, because he kept tightening it, he kept pulling it tighter, and he kept pulling it tighter. Uh -huh. And I started to, like, get uncomfortable. I, I really was. I was, I was like, this? Is you haven't experienced uncomfort, lady. Wait until you stand before God and have to explain all these stories you're telling. <laughs> it's not comfortable for me. And, and just when I thought, surely, because there's a sound that... A guitar uh, string will make right before it's going to snap. Uh -huh. And I could hear that. It's like a... I, something like that. Uh -huh, yeah. And I, could, I kept hearing that. And he just kept tightening it and tightening it. And I was thinking, surely you're going to stop. But he, no, he's not going to stop. And stop calling him Shirley. He just kept pulling it tighter and tighter until he thought it was tight enough. Right. And then he began... The whole process over with each string, just string by string, he would pull it tighter and tighter. And each string, I would just get more uncomfortable. This was just not comfortable to me. And I live in the world. Yeah, by the way, Julie, um, I'm just not comfortable with this idea that somehow angels are visiting you and you're preaching about these visitations. Um, by the way, you're a woman, so, um, I got a problem with you teaching period to the church, but you know, hey, you know, that's just a slight problem with music and it was not comfortable to me. And then uh -huh. when he had got the last of the six strings uh, yeah. on this guitar uh -huh. where he had tightened them to where he thought they sounded good, he began the tuning process. No, you know, what's funny is, is that. I'm not even an angel, and I I play guitar, and I've done this probably a thousand times in my lifetime. And he began to tune it harmonically. Yeah, I know how to do that. It's pretty easy. That's the easy way to do it. He began to tune it in a way that was different, and he began to play it uh -huh. in a different way. Wow. Does that mean he played it with his foot? And then when it was tuned to the place where he thought... It was perfect. Uh -huh. I remember that he he set the guitar down. Yeah. And he wiggled his fingers. Wiggled his fingers. And uh -huh. then he he did this. Oh yeah, he, he stretched his fingers out. Yeah. Uh -huh. And he began to play this guitar. No, really? Wow. And it was beautiful. It it, it sounded. I mean, and, and I remember in the dream that it was like. Uh, a Stradivarius. When you hear a st uh, Stradivarius, would be a violin, by the way. Stradivari you know. Stradivarius uh -huh. violin. Yeah. When the master yeah. plays a Stradivarius, it's beautiful. It's stunning. And this angel began to play yeah. this uh, guitar yeah. in 
the most beautiful way. I had no idea that it could make the sounds that it was making. I had no idea that it was... Do you have a point? As beautiful a sound as it was. And I, I just sat there in absolute awe of the melodies and the tunes and uh, th that was coming out of this guitar. And then suddenly, it was just, it's like the angel vanished and it was just the guitar laying on my bed. And I went over and I looked at the front of this guitar uh -huh. and it was a mirror. It was like looking into a mirror. And I Wow! It was like looking into a mirror. Saw me. Uh-huh. And I saw this... Not surprised that you saw you. Just... Generation of people in this uh, mirror on the guitar. And I knew that the guitar is you and that the guitar is me. Really? And I'm giving you a heads up because it's always better so the guitar is you and the guitar is me so uh let me see that means that angels strum us huh if god is getting ready to work on different areas in our life right if we have a heads up uh -huh. we know that it's coming yeah and i tell you that god is passionate that his bride would be a beautiful sound and make a beautiful sound. Uh, uh, God is passionate that his bride would make a beautiful sound. And he is getting ready. The master's hand is getting ready to, to tighten the strings. And what I knew that to mean is God, he, he's, he's taking the boundary lines of our life and he's, he's pulling them closer together that we would walk right straight in the middle of that narrow road. Um, okay. So yeah. where's Christ in all this? Because, you know, Christ is, the, he gives me his righteousness. I get to wear it as if it, I'm the one who really uh, is the one who's righteous. It's the righteousness from God, not my own. Isn't Christ the narrow road? He's the way, the truth. Yeah. This is what we sound like when we're gossiping. Yeah. This is what we sound like yeah. when we're bitter. Uh, that's what you sound like when you are preaching your own dreams and visions as if they're the word of God. This is the sound we make when we're offended. This is the sound that you make when you are breaking the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What you're doing right now, Julie. When we're angry. Uh -huh. It's not a beautiful sound. No. This is the sound that we make when we're gossiping. This is the sound that you make when you are being a false prophetess. When we're complaining, when we're murmuring. Uh-huh. He, he wants us shining and looking like that city that sat that sits upon a hill. Of course he does. That's why he gives me Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift, as if I'm the one who uh, lived it. And I, I knew that we were in a season that that, that it was going to be uncomfortable uh -huh. because that yeah. which we could do yesterday, yeah. we aren't going to be able to do today. What? And it's like most of the time the Holy Spirit comes to us with that gentle, 
that gentle whisper. Uh-huh. But but the Lord is he's he's sending his spirit and it's going to be this tap. I mean this tap because he is so passionate. What are you talking about? Where did you get this information from again? Oh yeah, you're just making this up. About our destiny. Oh, he is yeah. so passionate. Our destiny. My destiny, I'm in Christ. It's about him, not me. Passionate about our destiny in him. That beloved, I'm telling you, he's gonna to, he's gonna tighten. He's gonna tighten the strings of your heart, the strings of your mind. That that which Ugh. was okay seemingly yesterday, uh-huh, yeah. he's saying, uh-uh. I knew that he was getting ready to really tighten and tune just our words and what we speak. Well, he obviously hasn't done that in your life yet because. Uh... Uh, Julie, just by way of uh, introduction, have you ever read Colossians chapter 2 or the book of Jude? Uh, book of Jude, you know, it's only one chapter, but I'll you know, tell you what, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. I'll, I'll read it to you. Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 18 is really the one you want to read. But you know what, just because we follow this real simple principle when it comes to biblical interpretation is is that it's always about context. Three rules are context, context, and context. But let me read to you what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the Colossian church, which, by the way, was plagued with a heresy that was running around. And funny enough, uh, the heretics at Colossae has some of the same attributes as the heretics over at Extreme Prophetic. We read um, Colossians 2, chapter 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all and rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you you, were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, by the way, you're right. Christ does want his bride to be shining and beautiful. And the way he does that is by dying for our sins on the cross. He's the one who tidies us up, if you would and makes us bright and shining in bright, sparkling, spotless robes of righteousness that have been dipped in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, uh, He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon, Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his or her sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together and its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, Colossians chapter 2, really specifically verses 18 and 19, 
warn us not to listen to people like you who go on and about angels and puffed up about your visions were to really ignore you because we listen to Christ and his voice, the one who set us free, who died for us on the cross, the one who forgives us all of our sins. We are to abide in him. He is the head. Uh, this going ons about visions and angels and stuff like that. Well, I don't hear Christ and him crucified in what you're saying there. Um, Julie, so got a problem with it. By the way, uh, just as a bonus, we'll throw in a little bit of Jude here. Uh, the uh, Jude, that would be uh, who is the brother of Jesus Christ. We read Jude verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Notice he doesn't even mention that he's a brother of Jesus. Yet he is. Uh, to those who are called beloved in God and uh, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, apparently have set up websites, um, who, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although... You once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not uh, stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that, all, uh, all that they uh, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the gain of Balaam's error and perished at Korah's rebellion. Now, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit but you beloved building yourselves up in the most build yourse yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now that's some Christ-centered stuff. Uh, the stuff that Julie Myers is preaching and teaching, well, um, I think our music for that is absolutely spot on. I think the, um, the music we chose fits it perfectly. It's just fractured fairy tales. Going on and on about angels and visions puffed up in her mind, thinking that somehow she's special, because she apparently has visions of angels with sour guitars. Yeah. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, I got one more uh, article I want to read to you from the Christian Post called Christians Urge to Repent of Religion, and that will be a perfect segue for us into our review today. We're not doing a sermon review. We're going to be listening to a lecture by Matt Chandler. He did a plenary speech at the Advance 09 conference that just finished up called Preaching the Gospel to the D. Churched. Definitely a good lecture. You're not going to want to miss it. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's right, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook or, you know, Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hour number two straight ahead. Good stuff on tap today. You know, it's funny. I've been spent, seems like, last four or five days reading 
and a lot, reading a lot. I, it's one of the things I really feel strongly about is, you know, in order for me to continue to bring a quality program to you day in and day out here at Pirate Christian Radio, it's respo- I, it, I have to be responsible and, you know, fill up my tank, so to speak. And I have been reading Gerhard Furty's uh, books on being a theologian of the cross. Boy, is that good. I think we're going to be offering that for sale pretty shortly here at uh, our uh, Pirate Christian Radio store. Definitely work you want might consider picking up. Uh, but uh, also, he uh, has this fantastic book that he's uh, written about theology is for proclamation. Whoa, man, is that, again, another fantastic book. And really the goal of that one is it, it, it kind of the premise, the underlying premise behind it is, is that systematic theology is secondary talk about theology. It's not primary talk. And that really systematic theology, it's important to study and to have a discipline when it comes to systematic theology because everybody does have a systematic theology of one, one or another. Uh, but the, really the ultimate goal of that, of systematic theology, is for proclamation. He has a fantastic example of this, and I'm doing, doing shooting a little bit from the hip here. Uh, the idea being is, is that you know if you said to your significant other, now I, I, I know I've got people who in my audience who are married, and I've got people in my audience who are, uh, who are dating, so I don't want to discriminate. But you know, imagine if to, you're either your wife or your husband or to your boyfriend or your, your girlfriend, uh, they came to you and asked the question, do you, do you love me? And you answered by saying, you know, funny that you would ask that. Love, you know, it's such an interesting thing. You know, uh, have you read C.S. Lewis's book on the four different types of love? I mean, there's really this four different ty- – and so what happens is when the when your significant other asks you the question, do you love me, you launch off into a discussion about love but don't answer the question. Uh, that's what, what the basic premise behind Gerhard Ferdy's uh, book on, you know, theology is for proclamation is that ultimately – all of our study of theology, all of our study of doctrine, anything that we study systematically, that's talk about theology, but it's that's really not its goal. Theology is for proclamation, which is one of the reasons here at Fighting for the Faith, I make a point of telling you that Christ has forgiven you. You need to hear it. That's proclamation. It's not just mere systematic theology. It's, it's, it's above and beyond that. So, uh, again, it, it's a fantastic work. Those of you who want to follow along and read it, it's worth the read. Uh, two books I'm reading on being a theologian of the cross. In fact, we're in the process right now. I'm putting together a Bible study that we're going to make available uh, via uh, you know, basically online at com. Those of you who subscribe to our iTunes podcast, you'll get it automatically once we're ready to publish it. I'll, I'll keep you posted as we're getting closer. But it's a it's a it's a study on law and gospel. It's it's really about how do you attain the righteousness that allows you to stand before God. And that's that, I think that's the, the the working name I have on it right now. And I've adapted uh, concepts from uh, Martin Luther's Heidelberg Disputation of uh, 1518 into a study on law and gospel that has basically the same guts to it. And Gearhart Forty's book on uh, being a theologian of the cross provides some of the underpinning thoughts to it as well. And I, I hope that it'll be a great, a great resource for everybody at Pirate Christian Radio, everyone who listens to this program, and really am looking forward to getting that out to you. Anyway, I, I just share that to you with you because it, this is the kind of stuff that excites me and, and really gets me going. And, um, you know, there we go. 
<laughs> All right, as promised, uh, I got one more article I want to read to you. This will segue into our our. We're going to re- listen to a lecture today, a plenary speech by Matt Chandler. We've listened to Matt Chandler before. There's a guy down in Texas who I think really gets it regarding the gospel, and uh, his uh, lecture is called "Preaching the Gospel to the Dechurched." Well. I'm all about preaching the gospel, so I want to hear what this guy has to say about preaching the gospel to the de-churched. And uh, this advanced conference really kind of reaches out to the church planting community. So, again, this is going to be really interesting uh, to listen to. But uh, one of uh, his fellow speakers at the advanced 09 conference was Pastor J.D. Greer, uh, who's the lead pastor of Summit Church. He also uh, 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 did a plenary speech. I think it was called... uh, Church planting is for uh, for the weak or something like that. I, I'm I'm doing this from memory, but it was a tongue in cheek kind of thing. Uh, uh, anyway, but uh, here's uh, here's this from the Christian Post. Uh, Christians are urged to repent of religion. Now, before you think this is some kind of a gimmicky thing, again, I, I think there's some uh, there's some uh, merit here to this uh, to this article. Religion may be choking the growth of Christianity in America. It's not so much postmodernism that many Christians lament of, or the harder hearts of the younger generation, or a less interested God that's causing more and more pews to be empty. Rather, the culprit seems to be religion, as one Durham, North Carolina pastor pointed out. Quote, religion seems to choke out the gospel among God's people. J.D. Greer, lead pastor of Summit Church, told hundreds of pastors at Advance, a conference on the resurgence of the local church. And until Christians repent of religion, no program, energy, or strategy will help them grow, Greer said Friday. Greer, who's 36, helped grow the summit, originally Homestead Heights Baptist Church, from 400 people to some 3,000 and is continually reaching people from throughout the Triangle area. He doesn't claim to be an expert at church revitalization, but he says he knows there are some things that have to happen in order for a church to revitalize around the gospel. And looking around the churches in his community and across the Bible Belt where churchgoers are getting fewer and older, he sees... People asking why. Why is God not moving? What is it about us, Greer posed, citing that Jesus reprimanded over uh, uh, over 2,000 years ago. Greer said religion is keeping Christians from effectively carrying out God's will. Quote, in religion, there's no passion for God. There's no hunger to know him, the summit pastor said. For religious people, Christianity becomes more of a checklist of duties and behaviors, such as small group involvement, volunteering, taking a mission trip, and reading the Bible. That's what religion does. It reduces God to a set of duties, Greer noted. Now, I'm going to pause here. What is he talking about here? This is, this is actually a good observation by, on the part of this Baptist minister. The law doesn't save us. And theologians of glory are the ones who basically reduce Christianity down to a checklist of do's, things to do, where you can say, I've done these things. That's um, a religion of works. I wouldn't call it just religion. It's a religion of work. Christianity is a religion, okay? True Christianity is a religion. But in this particular case, this is a religion of works that he's describing. And Christianity is not a checklist of things to do. In fact, Christianity is the proclamation of the good news that Christ died for your sins and is calling us to repentance. He's calling us to freedom. 
He's calling us to the freedom that, uh, freedom from sin, because sin is slavery. The freedom to the love of God that only comes through the gospel from God raising us from the dead, from death to life, from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, so I think he's on to something here. Um, it, it, it redu- he says that's what religion does. It reduces God to a set of duties. In addition to substituting love for God for religious ritual, religious people often elevate secondary matters such as dress code, alcohol, politics, taking care of the earth above a love for God. Well, that's law. We got churches that are filled with people who think that they're going to heaven because they don't cuss or drink beer or because they vote Republican. Yeah, I got I got news for you all, folks. Um, there are going to be plenty of people in hell who were Republicans that drank beer and never cussed. I mean, didn't drink beer and never cussed. Teetotaling Republicans who didn't cuss, plenty of them are going to be in hell. Um, the, quote, the tragedy is our emphasis on those things that has kept us from calling them to real repentance. The secondary traditions are important, but Greer noted that they off, they've often replaced the real thing. Anytime we preach a gospel that leaves people thinking about what they're supposed to do for God and not what God has done for them, we have preached a false gospel, said Greer. Yeah, now that's right. Anytime we preach a gospel that leaves people thinking about what they're supposed to do for God and not what God has done for them, we've preached a false gospel. I agree. Other characteristics of uh, religious uh, uh, people the young pastor listed include seeking recognition and praise from people and elevating religious ritual over love for others. Religious people have lots of rules, but they don't have love, Greer said, adding that they are usually angry, judgmental, and more concerned with winning an argument. (laughs) Although he's being judgmental and winning an argument here. Oh, this is funny. A little bit of a mixed bag. Um... Okay. Anyway, I bring that out because this is uh, this is the kind of thinking that's that's being injected now uh, through uh, the Desiring God organization into the Christian Church, and I, there's some merit here. There's some things I would say yeah, we need to cut, you know, kind of discern that a little bit better. But I, overall, I like what I'm hearing. This, he's trying to create some kind of a distinction. Uh, the true gospel is the one that tells us what God has done for us. And our response to that, by the way, is that God raises us from death to life, and we then are free to love God because we are made new. We are set free from sin. How could we not love God and serve our neighbor? This is done as a fruit of faith, and other people, they try to get to the fruit, but they don't want faith. They don't want to believe that faith, that salvation is a free gift, that it's got to be something they've got to do to earn it. They're not comfortable with this idea that it's completely free. So what do they do is they hide behind their good works and their false good works because they're not fruit of faith. Instead, they're the fruit of self-righteousness. That's not true Christianity. That's not the true gospel. And that doesn't save you. In fact, if you trust in your good works to save you, you're damned. You're damned because God insists on giving it to you as a gift. And if you insist on working for it, then you are slapping God in the face because salvation is 100% gift. All right, moving along here. Next segment, we're going to be listening to, like I said, we're preaching the gospel to the D Church by Matt Chandler from the Advance 09 Conference, which was just mentioned in the Christian Post article that we 
uh, read here. Again, this I don't always po- post things or review things that I completely agree with. In fact, I, I believe in what's called the church Catholic with a small c. The church is universal. It, the church transcends denominations, if you would. The thing that we all have in common, where, tr- where the true church is, it's those who trust in Christ for their salvation. And true churches exist where pastors preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and rightly administer the sacraments. I think that's part of it, too. That being the case, though, Matt Chandler has some provocative things to say here. Worth the listen and would love to get your feedback. So without any further ado, here is Matt Chandler from the Advance 09 Conference. I, I think that what we're doing here um, is a little bit dangerous. And, and here's what I mean by that. I don't mean dangerous as in, uh, you know, take the world for Jesus dangerous. I, I mean dangerous in regards to a constant gathering of information with no real effort or ability to apply that information So then you create this real weird Christian subculture where you've got your heroes and you've got your preachers and you've got your, and everybody keeps coming to the same conferences over and over and over again. And it's starting to remind me somewhat of what I read in the Old Testament where God says, I hate your gatherings. Um, So I say all of that because of this. I don't think I'm about to say anything that you haven't heard. I don't like, I would even go farther than that. If the men who have already preached have said something that you haven't heard, then we're in monumental trouble here. You should not be in ministry. If you don't understand the church, you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand the message of reconciliation that we've been given, then I don't know what we're doing. So I think we're in a dangerous place once again to come back in and hear truths that we already know. And so before I go, I, I want us to plead with the Holy Spirit to do something here. To plead with the Holy Spirit to move this. Because, man, most of us could write a blog on all this. Most of us could write a paper on this is the gospel. This is what I think's wrong with the church. This is what I think's right with the church. Here's how I think we could fix it. Here's how we're trying to do things. Here's the things we're trying. I think we could all do that. I mean, I'm looking around the room. I think it's, this is a young room. For the most part, this is, I think we could all do that, but here's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit's power in those things. We need even now, there've been probably five moments in my life where I walked into a room and had God so love me and be so gracious to me as to destroy me and make me completely different as I walked out. Um, those are rare moments. Uh, We couldn't handle it if they were um, every time. But I want us to pray. And by that, I don't mean I want to pray. I mean, just for a second here, I want us to pray and, and say, God, help us. God, speak to us. God, move. You know where you are. You know, I'm not stupid, man. I've been in ministry a long time now. I know some of you in here with about as cold a heart as the, the most pagan man out there. We need to ask God to speak where we are. We need to ask the Holy Spirit right now to engage us where we are. That God might love us. That God might be so gracious to us as to not let us out here without, um, how does Hebrews 12 say it, scourging us. My little boy told me a couple nights ago that Jesus doesn't like spankings. 
And I uh, quoted Hebrews 12 to him and said, actually, anyone who doesn't get whipped is an illegitimate child. <laughs> then I just left and I just walked out of his room. So <laughs> let's pray. Let's pray and let's get to work. Okay, you pray for you. I don't know who you are. I don't know how you've come in here. Some of you are ministers. Some of you aren't. Some of you, you pray for you. Do you know how often God violently engages in the scriptures those who mentally know truth, intellectually know what's correct, but have cold hearts that are far from him, lives that lack love, gentleness, and humility? Holy Spirit, rain down on us. We want to be your... Speak to us. Move in us. Expose our idols. Correct. Rebuke. Reprove. Train us. Help us. Teach us. It, it almost feels that these things that the choir has gathered. I pray that you would love us in such a way to engage us deeply. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Um, Tyler started his talk by walking you through the book of Ephesians. Um, when I heard him do that, I was in the back and I heard him over the speaker do that. I was like, uh-oh, um, I'm doing something similar. But then um, he went on and it's not. I, I have loved and been intrigued by the church at Ephesus, not the book of Ephesians, but the church at Ephesus um, for a long time. And, and I want to show you what's so intriguing about them. And I want to just kind of get up at 30,000 feet and show you the history of that church. I want to show you its birth and then I want to show you um, the last thing we hear, if you will, from the cockpit before the thing disappears. And, and then maybe in all of that, the Holy Spirit might speak to us and minister to us deeply. In Acts 18, you see some strange things occurring. You've got Apollo speaking boldly, and it starts in verse 24. I'm not going to read all of this. Uh, I will definitely um, pick a couple here and there, but it starts in 24. A man named Apollos, a Jew, native of Alexandria, comes to Ephesus, and he begins to boldly proclaim the word, which is strange, and strange for two reasons, because Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside and go, ah, ah, kinda. Kinda. That they've got to fix. And then if, if you look right after that, if you go to 19, uh, Apollos heads to Corinth. Paul gets into Ephesus and then Paul finds the brothers there and asks them if they've heard of the Holy Spirit, if they've got the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and they say, we haven't even heard of him. So there were some holes in the early ministry there. Um, even, in, even in Priscilla and Aquila correcting so Priscilla and Aquila sit down Apollos. Well, you don't really got it completely right. Paul shows up and then goes, okay, you don't have it right either. And then they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then this crazy thing happens. It's like when the Holy Spirit's involved in your ministry, these things happen. These things happen. And then he's going to go into the synagogue and he's going to preach and proclaim. There's going to be a disturbance. They're going to go out on the hill. 
Um, they're going to continue to grow in favor. God, uh, God's going to do these crazy miracles through Paul's handkerchief, his apron, or healing people. Um, this is the church planting in Ephesus. This is the church starting. This is the birth of the church. It's actually slow going, a little bit painful. And then all of a sudden, um, the sons of a Jewish exorcist decide that this thing that Paul does with demons is a really cool thing. And so they want some of that. And so in really one of the craziest things in scripture, these guys set out to find a demon possessed man and they find him. Okay. So they try to cast out the demon by simply by magic. Repeat after me, right? He's, he's just quoting Paul. He says, you know, in the name of Paul and the demon speaks to him. I love what the demon says. Um, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul since the first time I read this. I love that they had heard of Paul. They don't know him, but they're like, who, Paul? Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, I've heard of him. So there was some sort of clamor in the spiritual realm. Jesus I know, and I've heard of what Jesus is doing through Paul. But then he goes, um, but who are you? <laughs> and then the Bible, in fact, I, I'll, even, I'll even let you look at this with me. In 16, I think 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So if you're in a fight where you get the clothes beat off of you, you're wounded emotionally, spiritually, physically. That's not just black eye wounded. That's a soul wound. Someone beats pants off of you. That's a soul wound. Now, after that, the, the Bible says this fear, really, this fear falls on Ephesus in regards to the power of Jesus Christ. And now we're moving. Now, now what was slow, now what was trotting, now what was in the hills has now taken off. And there are these really powerful things coming. We're going to come back to this line by line here in a few. Um, and, and so the gospel slams into Ephesus. And it slams into Ephesus with such ferocity that the whole socioeconomic climate in Ephesus begins to shift. Now, what he means by the whole socioeconomic climate at Ephesus, by the way, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The uh, the great temple to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And so you read about the uh, the incident there where there was a riot in Ephesus as Christianity takes hold. Uh, the the people who, who made their living from the pilgrims visiting the temple of Artemis uh, begin to feel a, a recession, a depression of sorts, if you would. Their lives are severely impacted. So the gospel has this amazing, huge impact on Ephesus to the point where there's a riot from the people who are making a living from the, the idols there. This is what he's referring to. Right? It, it begins to shift to the point where those who had made money off of what was wicked are now losing money and they began a riot in Ephesus because of all right, their, their lack of funds. They're not getting paid anymore. So the gospel penetrated Ephesus in such a way that the socioeconomic climate shifts in the city. Right? Uh, the gospel blows Ephesus up. It just blows it up. Now, Paul, uh, a church planter, church is planted, is moving on to what's next, all right? Frontier ministry. And so he's going to gather the elders together. And, and look at this in Acts 20. In Acts 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 18.
And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Look at 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and a Afflictions await me. I love 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. 25 is going to be big for where we go next. Now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you on this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I want, when it's my time to go home, when God returns or kills me, to be innocent of the blood of the village church. 28. Pay careful attention to two things, yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit, not I, but the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why? Look at 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So the church is planted in Ephesus. It blows up. The gospel is penetrated. Even the socioeconomic climate of the city, the church is there, it's booming, it's growing, there are miraculous things going on, the fear of the Lord is there, they're extolling the name of Jesus Christ, they're confessing their sins, they're destroying their idols. Paul, on his way out, says, pay attention, be careful, pay attention, because from the outside, wolves are coming, and from the inside, false teachers are coming. And I'm not going to see you again. Not on this side of things. And this also is held one of my favorite little truths about Paul where he's got this great moment where the elders at Ephesus are going, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get killed. And they're like, he's like, I know the Holy Spirit told me to. See you later. I got to go to Jerusalem. You know, just that. (laughs) Okay. Now. We don't hear anything else about Ephesus and Acts, but then we get the book of Ephesians, really not written too many years after he's left here, Paul in prison. And, and you don't get a lot of detail about what's going on in Ephesus at that point. You know that he's, um, you've got some of the same thing where he's telling them you're going to need to defend doctrine. You're going to need to know your theology. You're gonna, in fact, the first um, three chapters uh, of Ephesians, just strong, deep, doctrinal goodness and and then now he's going to go not only do you need to defend truth not only but now he's going to add this but but unity matters so doctrine yes and unity all right walk in unity walk in love with one another so doctrine yes but also unity and and then from the the book of ephesians then we get over to first and second timothy and in first and second timothy um paul is addressing 
Timothy, who is in the middle of the Ephesian controversy, and, and he's saying to him, doctrine matters, truth matters, stand up for it, bear witness to what is true. But then he goes, not only, not only is there going to be um, doctrine and unity, but also there's going to be doctrine and the gospel. Now, I know the gospel is also doctrine, but in 1 Timothy 4, he tells Timothy, be trained not just in good doctrine, but the gospel so that if you miss the gospel piece but you get doctrine correct something bad is going to happen listen carefully to what he's about to say this is a fantastic fantastic point and so first in second timothy although it's very much about church leadership how to build it out elders it's also about doctrine yes but the gospel. Then you have first, second, and third John. You've got John, who's an elder at Ephesus, writing these letters, and, and he's going to do what? He's going to talk about two things defending truth and love. Doctrine and love. Do- doctrine and love. And so the, the whole story, and, and this is about a 40 year story, 45 year story, is that this church booms with the gospel. It's a church that we all want to be about. It's a church that we all want to be in. It's what we're trying to do in our local congregations to see God's power fall in this way. And, and yet 40 years in, they, they keep being told, defend truth, defend truth. Doctrine matters, doctrine matters. But then they're trying to coach him. You can kind of see him getting off course because Paul comes back in and goes, doctrine matters. Yes, but unity, unity uh, okay, don't beat your brother up. Don't set anyone on fire here. Don't un- unity. And, and then he's going to roll back in and goes, uh, okay, and for a second, you're not handling this in a way that's kind of gospel-esque. And then John's going to come in and go, and love. Love. Don't, don't do it the way you're doing it. And then in the last... The last little blip we get about the church in Ephesus before they disappear is in Revelation chapter 2. So will you turn there with me real quickly? Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4. Verse 4 is unbelievably troubling to me. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, here's why I'm so troubled by this text. Because apparently their morality is going well, And apparently their doctrine is going well. And apparently, I'm looking at this on paper. If we don't have verse 4, I'm joining this church. They don't tolerate evil. I'm just taking this conjecture. I'm just taking that to mean they're still actively doing church discipline. They're part of the 2% of churches that actually believe that literally in the scriptures. 
They don't put up with evil. They don't put up, they can spot false teaching. You know how rare that is? I'm not a, oh, evangelicalism is doomed guy. I'm not that guy. But you know how rare it is to find someone who comprehends and sees life biblically? They do. They're going, ah, that's incorrect. That's incorrect. I mean, it looks like a place that they endure. And and then here's here's the key. They endure patiently. I mean, come on. For church folk, patience. I mean, who knew when Moses was wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years with grumbling, complaining people that that was actually a bit of prophecy for us all? (laughs) If you're listening to this and you go to the village, I'm not talking about you specifically. Okay. I have this against you, though, although you patiently endure. And although you'll stand up for truth, you've lost your first love. You've lost the love that you've had at first. Now, watch what happens next. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Listen to this next line. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And if that is, right? If that is the command of Christ, repent, do the things you did at first, or I will remove your lampstand, that's the last thing that you hear before it goes silent. And this church that started out with a boom, with the Holy Spirit's power shifting the whole socioeconomic climate of a major metropolitan area 40 years removed from that is having its lampstand removed. All right, so Jesus tells him to do two things here. All right, repent and do what you did at first. So that's going to take us back to Acts. Let's look at it. We'll be in Acts 19. Okay. I think the first question we have to answer is repent of what? Um, Repent of what? Just for time's sake? What they needed to repent of, what many of us need to repent of, is a cold, pragmatic heart that loves ministry and barely loves the king of glory. Like, can I? Okay, I'm going to rant. You can't stop me. Okay, I want you to listen carefully to the point he's going to make here. He's applying this first love thing. Ultimately, it comes back to you can love correct doctrine. And not love Christ. This is it's an important distinction. You can love ministry and the work of ministry and not love Christ. And this comes back to this idea. And I, I haven't really, you know, it, well, it comes back is the wrong way of putting it. This comes to the idea that Luther put forward in the Heidelberg Disputation, that our good works can actually be mortal sins. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole Catholic idea of mortal and venial sins. Instead, I think think of it this way. Our good works can become deadly sins. 
deadly in the sense that we put our faith and trust in them. Ultimately, if you put your faith and trust in your good works, even your ability to discern right from wrong, rather than in Christ, then your good works are undermining faith in Christ. And sound doctrine points us to Christ. Sound doctrine points us to the gospel. Discernment points us to the gospel. Our first love is Jesus Christ. And if you love doctrine more than you love Christ, and believe me, it's absolutely possible to do that, you've got a problem. Because sound doctrine is that doctrine that points us to, leads us to, proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins. Let's continue. Like when I read the Bible, okay, when I, when I read the Bible, all I see in there, all I see in there is men who are tormented. I mean, they're tormented, right? In, in a good way, most of the time. Like they are, um, David, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, thirsts for you. When can I meet with God? When can I? That is not a cute verse to be put on a cup or like on a shirt with a deer and antlers. No, he, it's not kitschy. This, he's in pain. Where are you? And I love him because he's as schizophrenic as the rest of us. He's like the day before that. He's like, oh, everywhere I go, there you are. <laughs> How long will you forsake me? You're like, it's literally on the same page in my Bible. I love this man. Okay, so you can, you, I mean, you do it. You, you read the Bible. There's this angst and pain in men of God where their glory, where their excitement, where their fervor is not in the acts that God allows them to do, but in God himself. And then you get into history and you get guys like Owen who says, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, hereon would I dwell in thought and affection until all things here below become as dead and deformed things no longer in any way calling out for my affectionate embrace. Luther, oh, I wish to devote my mouth to you. If you know Luther, of course he prayed that. Called the Pope the devil. Oh, I wish to devote my mouth to you. Do not leave me alone or I will easily wreck it all. And on and on I could go. Like there's this just angst in them all, this, this weird, holy pain where they, they want to, um, it appears, they want to scream, cry, and laugh all at the same time. But I... That seems foreign to me. And, and what I mean is like, just I don't hear much being talked about God this way anymore. It seems like everything's built on pragmatism. A plus B equals C. If you want C, do A, do B, you'll get C. 
Here's what we do. Here's what we do. Oh, it's going well there. Let me do what they do. Um, do you know in, in the book of Isaiah, God comes to Isaiah and he goes, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take off all your clothes and run through the streets of Israel naked for a couple of years. And Isaiah rightly went, what? Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not grabbing hold of that one. Yeah, how many guys are out there uh, preaching naked for Jesus? You know, with, if they did, though, I, they'd probably get a, an exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry. <clears throat> Although Isaiah doesn't. He's definitely truly a prophet of God. Where is that angst for the living God? Now, I'm not anti-pragmatism. We'll talk about that here in a second. I'm not anti-plans. I'm not anti You'd be a fool to not. When, when the 40 days of fasting, Nehemiah, Ezra, get in front of the king, let us go build the wall. What do you need? Uh, this is how many shovels. This is how many wheelbarrows. This is how many. He had a plan. The same plan is wrong. But where is that man whose heart's aflame for God? That God is enough. Regardless of... (laughs) Some of you, you're going to get churches of 6, 7, 8, 10, 15,000. Most of you statistically are not. And I don't think that means you fail. What a silly idea we've launched out on everyone. Okay. Repent of... A cold-hearted ascribing to truth that has not affected the heart. Okay? Now, here's what he tells them to do. Not only do that, but get back to what you've done at first. Let's look at what they did at first. There's only three things. We're going to be in 19. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. This is right after our boys were beat, naked, and wounded. Here's what happens. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, listen to this, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's number one. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. That's number two. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted, that's three, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord came continue to increase and prevail mightily. Now, um, there are three things that Jesus says you've got to get back to. All right. The first was that there was a fear of the Lord that created in his people an exaltation, a worship of his name. Now, um, here's how I think you have to do that. And my last point kind of draws it all together because without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to do that. But let, let me throw a couple of things out there. I think as Pastors, preachers, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, ministry leaders, whoever you are. We have got to get back to the nature and character of God in our preaching and teaching. Here's why. There is a horribly wrong assumption that Christians know it. Um, D.A. Carson 
um, wrote a book, The Cross in Christian Ministry. If you haven't read it, you should. In, in that, he quoted um, a guy who was with the Mennonites that he had met. And he said, here's, here's the thing he noticed about the Mennonite community, that the first generation loved the gospel. The second generation assumed the gospel. The third generation hated the gospel. There is an assumption that your people understand the nature and character of God. And because there is this assumption, most preaching is now built around pragmatics because they know that stuff. So they either know this is what God's like, this is what God does, or this is what he doesn't do. So we're going to focus on pragmatics or that that's not important. And so when that happens, you're left with a moralistic religion that says, do this, don't do that, but never has a foundation or a basis for that behavior. It doesn't work. Then you get, um, here's how I've seen the de-churched happen. You get men and women where growing up in churches where the gospel is assumed and the nature and character of God is assumed are taught morality. Man, I, I went to VBS growing up. I heard that God hates liars. We even sang a song about it. All right. I knew that true love waits, that we shouldn't drink beer, we shouldn't cuss, and any movie that was not about the crucifixion of Christ and was R-rated, you should not watch. And I, I grew up in that. A lot of people grew up in that. A lot, we grew up in this, do this, don't do this. Well, that's moralistic deism at its best. It doesn't transform. Now, here's why we walk away from the church. We walk away from the church when, with our best white-knuckled discipline, we accomplish those feats of morality, and then you let something bad happen to us. You let our wife leave us. You let a girl break our hearts. You let us not get into the school that we wanted to get into. You let our parents divorce. You pay, and our mindset is, I was good. And this is how you repay me. I behaved. I didn't see Terminator 2. I did not go to the Run DMC show. I did not. I did this, I did this, I did this. You owe me. Listen to this. This is so good. He is spot on here. This is the difference between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory, between a religion of works and the religion of grace. The religion of grace has its eye only on Christ. The religion of grace understands that it was you, it was me who put Christ on the cross and that all of our righteous works, our morality, our good works are as filthy rags and even our best of good works are so tainted with sin we dare not look to them at all as if that we merit anything from God. And that's how you get the de-churched. They were sold. Here's how you put God into your debt. But you don't put God into your debt. I, I know this because really, really faithful men in the scriptures have it go really, really bad for them. Yeah. We've got to get back to being theological. 
And I know, like, one of the things I hear out on the road all the time at conferences, um, not, not one like this. This has a stellar lineup. But I'm not kissing up. If we had a schmuck here, I'd tell you. I'd be like, look, this next session, roll out. Um, You get guys that, that say they're not theological. Well, I'm just not theological. Well, I'm not just... Well, here's the problem with that. If you're opening your mouth and you're talking about God, you're being theological. The problem is if it's not rooted in biblical, historical orthodoxy, you're probably being a heretic. So you can't use that line. I'm not theological. You are being theological. It's just really bad. C.S. Lewis states it well. They all say the ordinary reader does not want theology. Give him plain practical religion. I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. Theology means the science of God. And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him which are available. D.A. Carson says the better we know God, the more we will want all of our existence to revolve around him. And we'll see that the only goals and plans that matter are those tied to God himself and our eternity with him. We've got to get back to discussing the nature and character of the triune God of the universe. It's what sustains, it's what empowers, it's what creates awe and worship, which is what we were created for. You've got to get back to it. Now, let me be clear. I'm, I'm not, see I hear, I'm reformed, so our camp is, God help us. Like you get those guys that were like, if it's not line by line exegetical preaching, it's not biblical. And you're just like, oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, that Spurgeon was an idiot. (laughs) Yeah, that Spurgeon made me sick. I'm surprised God let him live to 54 or however long he let him live. Be creative. Be creative. Man, if you want to use smokes and lasers and... You know, put a helicopter on stage that shoots a missile across the thing. If you can tie that back to the nature and character of God, I will not judge you. I will be in awe. I mean, I'll... But be faithful to the text and unpack God for your people. Listen, recently we have a three-year-old little boy in our church found a just a nasty tumor at the base of his brain. Immediately took him in for surgery. They're taking him into surgery and telling his mama and daddy, if he survives this surgery, the little boy that had the seizure this morning, the one you knew before he had the surgery, when he comes out, he will not have that personality. We don't know what we'll retain and what he won't. Pragmatism. You're going to need more than pragmatism on that day. Okay. On top of them having a fear of God Almighty, they they also have this real culture of um, confession. Like it's a very raw, kind of edgy place Ephesus was. Like it's the Christians that are coming out and divulging their practices. If you know anything about Ephesus, I'm guessing their practices could have been pretty wicked. And they're coming out and they're, you've got this climate of confession that really turned into this beautiful thing. 
It, it seems that they started out very raw, very edgy, and near the end had gotten very clean. Had gotten very clean. Uh, I think I always want to get upset emails from people at the village, not because I earned it, um, but like I get stuff like this all the time. There'll be some people that'll smoke out um, on our little little front walkway. They'll smoke their cigarettes and... Um, I always know who's a visitor because I'll get emails just going, I cannot tell you how disappointed I was when I brought my family to worship. And the first thing we see outside the Lord's house is smokers. We will not be back. And I'm just like, oh, thank you, God. It's actually not true because the older brother needs the father just as much as the prodigal son does. Now, how do you build then a culture of confession where confession is free? And I'm not just talking big confession here. I'm not just talking about, oh, man, I murdered someone. Oh, I'm sleeping with my secretary. Or, oh, no, no, confession just built into the culture, just built into the climate. All right, how do you build confession into the climate of the church? Here's a, here, I mean, this is going to sound really easy, but you preach the cross. Oh, amen. Oh, that's what you do. You, you preach the cross. That's what you've got to do. First Corinthians two, two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we know Paul teaches more than the cross. He definitely teaches more than the cross. But what he's saying is, I can't talk about sex. I can't talk about money. I can't talk about social justice. I can't talk about community very long before I tie the reason and need of those things back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, great point. Man, all uh, everything else, every peripheral issue, it has to be hooked back into the cross. The cross is everything. Thank you, Matt, for saying that. Amen. When you're exalting the work of Christ in the cross, who gets to boast? Who gets to boast? You didn't do anything. What do you get to boast in? You've got nothing. But where the climate is that you're leaning against the cross and going, the rest of you guys really need to get on to some of this. Versus bowing down in front of it and going, there's room. There's room here. There's room here. You constantly preach and proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. Just to tell you how serious Jesus is about remembering the cross and having the cross as centered. Um, he, he tells the disciples, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to remind you everything I said. Honey, hey, the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to remind you everything I said. Um, so, you know, Peter, so in attentive. Quit taking notes. Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to tell you. Okay? That was conjecture. Now, <laughs> then he takes them to the upper room and does what? Don't you forget this. Remember, remember, remember. As long as you get together, you remember what? The cross. The cross. Um, here's another one. I think we're going the opposite way of this in evangelicalism, but I'll... If you want to build a culture of confession, not only are you going to have to make the cross central, but you're also going to have to learn to love our foolish position. <laughs> like there's, a, there's this real bent to try to make what we believe cool. <laughs> it's just, well, it wasn't designed to work that way. And 
and then B or two, whatever I said before that. Um, if you've contextualized the gospel to the point where everyone likes it, you're no longer preaching the gospel. It's not gonna, it doesn't matter how cool you are. It doesn't matter where you dress. It doesn't matter how you talk. It doesn't matter what you, you can't contextualize the gospel that far or it's no longer the gospel. See, there's, there's a foolishness to what we believe. It's, it's crazy. Like if anybody ever says it back to you, you, ha- you know the Holy Spirit's done a work in your life. Like if someone says back to you, okay, so let me get this straight. A virgin gave birth to a guy who was God, but only part of God, but still completely God, but man also. Lived perfectly, so they killed him. They buried him, and then he came back to life, and then he floated back into heaven. And then one day, let me get, make sure I get all this right. One day he's coming back on a white horse. To get us. That's what you believe, partner? <laughs> What's our response? Mm-hmm. We <laughs> do. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. You want to come? You want to go with me? We're going to meet him in the air. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I Declare, I delight, declares the Lord. We do have a boast. It's in the cross. We, here's my point. You have to create a climate where the foolishness of man is seen under the weight of the cross of Christ. So we'll do that several different ways. Um, we show testimony videos at the village. They're about three minutes long. I actually see some of our people here. Um, they're about three minutes long, and they're not always the hero. It's just not the guy that was like, you know, I drank, you know, Jack Daniels every day of my life for the last 40 years. I came to know Jesus Christ seven months ago and I didn't even desire to drink. Amen. And then everybody's like, oh. She signed the front of my Bible. That was amazing. I I love that miracle. Um, But probably one of the most powerful weekends we've had in the last year was a a guy by the name of Mike Luna. He he wouldn't care that I'm sharing his story. He just has a really banged up past man it's been a lot of abuse and every manner of abuse and he sat there and loved the gospel and talked about his difficulty in life and wept and he finally near the end of it he just didn't even finish answering the question he was asked he just got up and walked off tape so we had to ask him can we can we use that can we not can we not use that can we use it and he was like no if, if you think it'll help use it and and we put a guy up there who loved the lord but was struggling in a valley So what does that do? That makes everybody in the room go, oh, you can be honest about having some valleys. Now we've got a culture of confession. So that's just an easy idea. All right. 1 Corinthians 127, God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 118, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Okay, I've got 10 minutes here. Not only do we need a culture of confession, um, here would be the last thing. Not only do we need a fear restored, an understanding of the character and nature of God, um, but the third thing they did, and I'm not really for book burning, as bad as they are, 
is they burned their books, but it was a specific type of book, wasn't it? It was the books on witchcraft and sorcery. Um, they're burning or destroying their idols. So what does Jesus tell Ephesus to get back to? A fear of God Almighty that makes them extol his name. A culture of confession and openness where we acknowledge our only hope is the cross of Jesus Christ. And then the destruction of our idols. Now, two things I want to talk about on this idolatry piece. Um, Calvin says that our hearts are just idol factories. They're just constantly making new idols, which means, and, and you really watch this happen in Ephesus. They started out with the gospel that really blew up their hearts. And then before you know it, their, um, their idol isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their God isn't Jesus Christ. And now their, their idol is the truth that they possess and that they wield and that they handle. So you can see something that started out. I believe Tyler covered this, this thing that started out very beautiful, very gospel centric actually got off the rails. Okay. Listen carefully again. He's making a valid point. Again, our good works, we have the ability to create idols, even idol, an idol of the truth. If the truth is your idol and not Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, then you've got a problem. It's one thing to love arguing and defending the truth. And defeating people who are wrong. Believe me, I have some experience in this department, unfortunately. Consider this to be confession for me. But it's a whole other thing. Do not just contend for the truth. But to make every thought captive and obedient to Christ. That's really a different beast altogether. It's something completely different. Why? Because it's possible to have a love for the truth but have no love for God. That's why Scripture warns us that knowledge does puff up. Knowledge puffs up. We don't have knowledge for knowledge's sake. No. And we don't learn doctrine for doctrine's sake. We learn doctrine because it's hinged to the cross and the message of redemption and the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation in Christ. Doctrine is all about Christ, not just some generic philosophical understanding of, quote, truth. He's making a good point. Paul will say, I beat my body and make it my slave. See, here's a weird thing that I've noticed being a pastor. We're still trying to figure it out. For some reason, people are just okay with their sins. I mean, they're just okay. Like, here's how it works. We're very young at the village. So what we do is get a flood of 20-year-olds that come to group every week and are just like, eh, I looked at porn again. It's horrible. Just pray for me. And it's culture confession here at the village. I just want to confess it. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, let's pray for you. Prayer. Next week. How's your week? Oh, yeah. Looked at porn again. Oh. All right. That's tough. Anybody else? Oh, everyone. Okay. Are you the group leader? Let's pray for ourselves. Pray for and and so I mean you can take porn out and you can put something else in, but it's just like nobody's worried about habitual sin in their life despite the fact that the Bible tells you to probably be terrified if that's the case. I don't 
Like it just seems like everybody's comfortable with sin. And Jesus says, here, you're going to have to destroy it. I mean, we have to make war against it, I think is what Piper says. That we would make war against those things. They wouldn't be just trite little, oh, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one. And then here's the big thing on idolatry, and I'll start to wrap it up with this. Most people can't see their idolatry. Many of you seen that? I, I can't see my own. They call them blind spots for a reason, right? Apparently you can't see them. M- most people can't see their idolatry. This is why there has to be a recovery. There has to be a recovery of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There just has to be. Now, I am not talking. I am not talking about the gifts. All right? I'm not saying there needs to be a recovery in the understanding of the gifts. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm a gifts guy. But that's not what I'm saying here. If you look at evangelicalism in the West, it seems like we're trying to divide into different camps. In fact, it doesn't seem like we're trying. We're actually doing a very effective job at that. Is you've got gospel-centered churches and then those who really like the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work. There has to be a recovery of the understanding of the historic doctrines of the Holy Spirit. We've got it because it's in understanding our desperation and powerlessness. They're going to plead with the God of the universe to move. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. We learn that in John 16. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. We learn that in John 16. The Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus as our Lord, 1 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live like Jesus, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit gifts us to do ministry like Jesus, John 14. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Jesus, John 14. The Holy Spirit empowers us to witness about Jesus. Jesus, Acts 1, 8. If you'll remember, Jesus says, go into all the nations and tell them, baptize them, teach them to to observe all that I commanded. But before you go, you better get in that upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit. You try to do this without the Holy Spirit, it's going to go really bad for you. This is not, listen to me, this is not a mastering of technique. You tracking with that? This is not the right combination of leadership, doctrine, and luck. But that's how we're treating this thing. Uh, okay, oh, if I, okay, move the combination lock, two to 14, come over here, move it, okay, move it back, move it, bam, open, church of 6,000, I'm speaking to conferences. No, the Holy Spirit draws, the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit, we plead, we beg, for what? For Jesus to be glorified, for Christ to be exalted, for him to be known. It's this weird thing, you got so many guys trying to become something that you forget that the Bible actually teaches it's by becoming nothing, that something happens. Or maybe... Here's a scary thought. Or maybe God's wrath 
towards you will simply be to let you build some church based on you. Wow. Good point. Matt has a way of uh, not mincing words and calling a thing for what it is. That is truly a gift from God. Good words, good words. Because, see, I read in Romans 1 where when, when people go, I'm smarter than you, I'll do it my own way, God says, okay, do it. He ends the letter in Ephesus like this. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. Repent. Cold-hearted pragmatism. Repent. A heart that's grown cold to the things of God. Repent. Get back to what you did at first. Extolling, worshiping the Lord. Cultures of confession where pride is crushed under the weight of humility. And where our idols are destroyed because the Holy Spirit engaging our minds and engaging our hearts is embraced and not shunned. I had a friend in ministry fall recently. A member on my staff asked me how it could happen. Oh, I said, it's really easy. Here's how it happens. It takes time, but there's a thought that goes rogue. The Holy Spirit goes, uh-uh. And the person goes, leave me alone. That's how it happens. He who has an ear, let him hear. I, I'm not, I'm just guessing that not too many people heard in Ephesus. Because it's the last thing we hear. And the lamp stands removed. God help us. Let's pray. Well, there you have it. Uh, Matt Chandler's speech at Advance 09. And I think he has some great Christ-centered, cross-focused points. And I love him for it. Love a pastor, regardless of his denomination. Although he's reformed, so he's he's kind of a pseudo-Lutheran. Kidding. <laughs> Uh, he uh, he understands that it's about Christ and Him crucified. That's all that it's about. When Paul said, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and Him crucified, it's so easy to see what it is that he meant by that. Just look at his epistles. Every single discussion on any moral issue was hinged. Hinged. In Christ and Him crucified. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. It wasn't just offer yourself as a living fact sacrifice. It's in light of God's mercy. And where do we see God's mercy? In Christ and Him crucified for our sins. It's all about Jesus and everything that He did for you. 
If you think you have something to offer God, you still do not understand the depth of your depravity and sin. God does not exist to help you achieve your vision for some, some grand vision for your life. No, the cross stands as a direct affront to anything that you think that you have good to offer God. It shows you that you have nothing to offer God. The cross stands there in all of its bloody gruesomeness. Christ scourged in your place. Christ beaten in your place. Christ having thorns pressed into his head, nailed to a cross. God turning his back on him, the Father, and Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken, beaten, and bruised, and abused. That's what you did. And the cross stands directly against your good works, your philosophies, and even your, quote, love of the truth. Your good works amount to nothing. In fact, chances are your good works are what put Christ on the cross. Christ has not come to reform you. Christ has not come to rehabilitate you. He has come to kill you. You have a death to undergo. And you will either die in Christ... or you will die outside of Christ. It's all about death and resurrection, and it's all about Him. God is offering you free salvation, 100% gift in Christ. There's no works, no bargaining, no wages. You don't earn nothing. He insists on giving it to you 100% free. So put away your works and your formulas and your righteousness and all of these ideas where somehow you think you can earn brownie points with God or get an inside track with him or somehow hook a rope around his foot and make him owe you something. He owes you nothing, and the cross proves it. Because what Jesus got is what you deserve. You put him on that cross. And it's sad when a church that begins with the gospel and Christ and him crucified ends with their lampstand being snuffed out because they loved something other than Christ. And believe me, the things that we can love take on all kinds of pious forms. And they look good to us, don't they? Our good works look so magnificent. And yet Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, Pharisees! You are whitewashed sepulchers. Clean and on the outside, but inward full of dead men's bones. So don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your formulas. Distrust your works. 
find that you have nothing. For Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritual beggars, the ones who have nothing to offer God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Repent of your wickedness. Even repent of your good works. And trust in Christ and let him produce fruit in you. Fruit that keeps with repentance. There's a big difference, huge difference between self-righteous works and the fruit of repentance. It's the difference of light from darkness, night from day, truth from error, evil from good. You have nothing to offer God. Nothing. He owes you nothing. You put him on the cross, and the cross stands against you as long as you think that you can bargain with God. Repent and believe this good news. Sadly, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, as we go into the summer months, the time when, well, let's say, support dwindles, our bills don't. (laughs) Which means that your financial support is vital throughout the year for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support Fighting for the Faith by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of the friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, there it is, another edition of Fighting for the Faith, in the can, so to speak. I, that's radio lingo. I, I'm, I'm still trying to learn radio lingo, considering the fact that, are we really radio? Because we're on the, well, yeah, it's a long story. We'll have to debate that philosophically some other time. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can. And I encourage you to fight back, uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or ask to be my friend on Facebook, or you can receive our subversive microblogging tweets at Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. 